Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming tonight. We have some others I see already getting out of their vehicles and making their way in, but we're going to go ahead and hop in to Sunday school tonight. And uh, if you've been with us for the first two weeks, it's been a great journey, and we have a special guest with us tonight. Uh, didn't she enjoy Chris this morning? Wasn't he just incredible and just a great word? And so uh, Chris is going to uh, Greek out on us tonight. Uh, and it's going to be great. So uh, we'll, he'll kind of talk to us for a bit, and then after he's done, we'll have a Q&A. Um, so can we give it up for Chris Palmer tonight as he takes it away? Thank you for coming and, and, and sharing your Sunday evening. Uh, I really I told Tyler um, and Pastor Tyler and uh, just the, the whole team that I admire that you are having Sunday school and want to get into how to read Scripture and, and sort of, the deep things, uh, not deep, deep things, but theological things, if you will. Um, Sunday morning, people come and you hear sort of a pick-me-up for the week and something that's pastoral, but um, Sunday school is just very important, and this gives you all a, a chance to get behind and see, get behind the text and see how it can be treated, and just you could learn so much from, from these types of things. So I encourage you that uh, as... Pastor Tyler keeps rolling things out, keep rolling with him, and he's at SEU, and he's working through his master's, and um, he's learning. We, we've just talked theologically about so much in the, in the day that I've been here, so um, I just love what he brings and just want to endorse Glad Tidings Sunday School and say this is, this is every bit as good as a school or a college, and uh, just keep it up. Sound good? So my uh, area of expertise is uh, Greek exegesis. I'm also a uh, professor at Moody Bible Institute, uh, where I've taught Greek 3 and you know, all different sorts of Greek classes, and uh, I'm a New Testament scholar. I've been doing that for about 10 years in academia. And so tonight I want to talk to you um, basically about hermeneutics is sort of what do you do with what you find in the text. So we look at the text and we find certain things in it, and then what do we do with it? And um, so what I'll do is... Just kind of go through some things, and then you can ask questions in the end. Now, let me say this. We're going to look at syntax today. Syntax is sort of how words are constructed and how words are arranged to make further meaning. Now, one of the things that is important to understand in the New Testament is that the New Testament starts off with four stories, actually five stories, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And the New Testament writers were inspired by the Spirit. Scripture's infallible. So I don't want anyone to think that when we look at the Scripture story, I'm just saying it's as good as Tom Sawyer. It's just like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. But we will need to realize that it is, it is a genre, and that genre is story. And the writers were storytellers, and they were very skilled storytellers. And maybe I could one day explain to you why I think that and why I believe that and why scholars would believe that. So we, we live in a time where people want to be propositional about theology. I'll give you an example. Uh, people will say, what does the Bible say on this? And they're looking for a quote, or they're looking for something specifically to be said. And I like that on one sense, but I don't like that on another sense, because how many of you have ever said something in sort of a story you've told? And when you tell a story a certain way, it sometimes doesn't need to be said any other way, because it's ultra clear from the story, right? right. If I said to you, um, today... This isn't true. I'm making this up, okay? If I said to you today, after church, um, we were so busy, we went all over the place, and, um, you know, we didn't, even, we didn't even eat. And I came to my hotel room, and, and I got ready, and I came back here. Now, 
the way I've said that, would any of you think that I've said to you I'm hungry? That did my story, my little story, just give to you the idea that I'm hungry? Did you probably think to yourself, poor guy, they didn't feed him? <laughs> he preached three times, but they didn't feed him, right? So I, I, I kind of implied that in the story, didn't I? I don't really need to say it. And maybe I did, say, I, I did say that, by the way, I just told you the story. So imagine that Scripture can work like that, where some of the stories can be so clear to us that it implies to us more than actually is written there in the text. And so I think that what, what I like to do is say that there's propositional theology, and that are the statements, right? Thou shall not kill. Well, we don't need a story about that. We, we shouldn't kill. Or murder, I should say. Uh, Thou shall not covet. You know, these types of things that are there. It's Pauline teaching that's very clear to us. And then there's story, their story theology, where the theology is in the story. The, the, the story is the theology. And we're going to look at a few things that kind of show that. So if you would, I want you to go to... Um, Matthew chapter 26. Let's take a look at something. Now, as I was sharing earlier, stories can be arranged in a certain way where the arrangement of the story tells us more than the story actually itself or what's written in the story. And in English, we really don't do this. Shakespeare does it, but how many have ever actually sat and read all of Shakespeare? As much as you had to, I think, unless you're a literature teacher or some professor, that's kind of how it is. And maybe you read it and it's been a minute, but Shakespeare sort of uses this, but that's why they're, they're way better writers than we are today, because we don't really do things like this. But if we go to Matthew chapter 26, and in verse number 31, um, let's kind of read this, Matthew 26. I remember I tell you, I, I got this new Bible, and it's kind of... Matthew 26, and verse number 31, it says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. Jesus said, truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples, they all said the same. So how many have ever watched a sitcom before? I remember the good old days where the sitcoms were actually really good, right? Family Matters. You remember Family Matters? Remember Full House? Remember Wholesome Television? <laughs> before it was like the, the modern family where it's, you know, just that, like, like a nice nuclear family. The biggest problem they had back then was like somebody cheated on a test or something like that, right? And, and so uh, in, in that show, do you remember how there'd be like one scene where like Steve Urkel is kind of doing something over here and then it might cut to another scene and then, you know, Carl Winslow and his wife were doing something over here and the implication of that is while Steve Urkel's doing something, while Carl Winslow is doing something, it's kind of happening at the same time. Picture the Gospels are like that at some points where there are two stories being told, but the, th- the same things are happening at the same time, okay? Let's keep that in our mind. So Jesus just tells the disciples, hey, you guys are going to betray me. Okay, let's go to the next story because there's another story that's going to be told. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. And then if we hop down, we'll see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And we'll go here to verse number 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. The scribes and the elders 
had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his, his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesied us to you, Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, so they're challenging Christ here, right? They're challenging Christ, and they're basically saying, Prophesy something to us. If you can prophesy to us correctly, we're going to believe that you're the Christ. Is that the implication of the story? How many would say that's pretty fair? I'm, no trick question. That's the implication of the story, right? If only you would prophesy. And how many have ever got to this point in the story and you thought to yourself, Jesus, just give them like a word about their mother-in-law or something like that, right? <laughs> just like tell them what, something about their past, you know? Tell them their social security number, or, you know, their check number or something. Tell them who's going to win the Super Bowl on Sunday. And then you'll get out of this pickle and you'll get out of this mess. And, and guess what? You'll prove to everybody that you are the Christ and, and this whole thing will be over. You'll spare yourself death. And Jesus remained silent. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I missed the opportunity right there. And then remember the whole thing about the tiles. Two things happen at the same time. While Jesus is over there, while Jesus is being taunted by the high priest, something else is going on at the same time. It's in the courtyard. And Peter's in the courtyard. Look what it says here. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You're Jesus the Galilean. But he denied her. Verse 71. And when he sat down at the entrance, another servant girl said, This man was with Jesus. And he denied it again with an oath, saying, I don't know this man. After a little while, the bystanders came up to him and said, Certainly you are one of them. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and began to swear and said, I don't know the man. But Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me. Now, cut to the scene. Jesus is in the courtyard. They're telling him to prophesy. It seems like he can't do it. But the exact same time that Jesus is being told to prophesy and he doesn't do it, at that exact moment in the courtyard, his previous prophecy is coming to pass. You see that? So the high priests and the elders don't know this. But remember, it's being narrated to you, and you are the reader. So what do you think the reader is supposed to see here? What's the implication of the story? The reader's telling you. See, the high priest doesn't see it. And the joke's on them. Because the irony of this whole thing is Jesus is prophecy is actually coming to pass he is the christ while they're taunting him his words are remaining faithful and true and i would tell you that the story is insinuating to us that jesus is in fact the christ and he is god and now the blame and the guilt falls upon the pharisees and the high priest because they're actually putting god to his death do you see that 
How many would say that the story has spoken to us something extremely powerful? See, that's why when like a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on your door and says, where in the Bible does Jesus say that he's God? You can point to them the story and say, it's in the story all over the place, the way that the story is told, okay? Let's kind of cut here and um, take a look at something. Let's go to um, Matthew chapter Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. So we're talking about arrangement and how stories are arranged and how the arrangement of a story can actually tell us more than the words itself that are in the story. And so the arrangement is very important. If you look here at Matthew 1, we'll see that, remember, this is, this is coming after an intertestamental time where there's like silence for 400 years. And... Israel was waiting for the Messiah. Now, that 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament was a very, very intense time. You had the Maccabeans, and you had the revolt, and you had the temple, and, and all that's taking place in the temple. The temple had been rebuilt, and, and it's trying to be seized. And there, it was a, a time of very, very high eschatological tensions, which meant that Israel's really looking for the return of their Messiah, and it seemed like the Messiah had yet to come. And, and that was when apocalyptic literature came onto the scenes where people were writing about the coming Messiah and what it would be look like when the Messiah came and how they were going to, the Messiah was going to deliver them out of the hands of, of their Roman oppressors. And we don't hear anything from any prophet for 400 years. And then Matthew makes a statement as it begins. And the very first time that Jesus, that Jesus is introduced, that is introduced in the whole entire New Testament, actually that is introduced period, is in Matthew chapter 123, and it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and, and his name shall be Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. God with us. The very first thing that Matthew tells us about Jesus is that he's actually, he's God with us. So that would share with us that this is sort of a, an answer, wouldn't it be, to the cry of those in the intertestamental time that we need a Messiah and where he's at. And Matthew is saying here, hey guys, look at, he's actually come to us. He's the God man. He's with us, right? But Matthew does something very interesting and this is called like the sandwiching effect. This is the, this is the effect of framing. And framing would mean that you put something and you frame it around the middle. And if you look at the end of Matthew, the last thing that Jesus says in Matthew's account when Jesus goes off of the scene, look at how Matthew ends. He says in Matthew chapter 28, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what you have here is like a sandwich, or it's a framing effect. Matthew starts with, he's God with us, and Matthew ends with, he's God with us. What do you think the whole entire point of the book is? This is what God would be like if he was with us. He that has seen me has seen the Father in John's language, right? Right? And if that's not enough proof, look what we find in the middle of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 18. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I amongst you or with you. So Matthew has put one in the beginning, Matthew has put one at the end, and Matthew has put one in the center there to frame in that everything that is in his gospel is supposed to tell you that Jesus, in fact, came here as a man and lived among us as the God-man. Isn't that interesting? 
Okay, so, so that's an inclusio. So if you're writing notes, an inclusio is like a frame, how it's arranged to show you that he's framed it in to show you the contents around it. So let's go to John chapter 1. Let's take a look at another inclusio. John's purpose is to write unto the Jewish people, and he wants to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is God. Right? They're kind of on the fence. They're not sure really what to believe about Jesus. And the way that he kicks off John is he gives this whole entire idea about God and how he, and Jesus and about how he's the word. And, and he says here, kaitheos hein hologos. In the Greek, it's underlined kaitheos hein hologos. And basically, he's saying here the word was God. Doesn't mean he ceased to be God, but it's an emphatic way of saying that he's God. And so at the end of this, we find a guy that we call Doubting Thomas. Now, I don't like the, the name that he gets Doubting Thomas because when we, when we leave him as Doubting, Thomas, Thomas did doubt, but we shouldn't just call him a doubter because Thomas, the whole point of him being in the story, the reason why he's there is not to just say that he was a doubter. He actually was a really good example of what John was trying to prove because at the end of the narrative, Thomas answers him and says, my Lord and my God. Now, if Thomas is one of the disciples and he struggled with the crucifixion and the resurrection, but at the end of working this process out, he arrives at the conclusion, my Lord and my God, how many would say that he concludes exactly what John is trying to show you in the very beginning, and that is that Jesus was God. So did he arrive at the right conclusion? He absolutely did. So the point of this is to show you that the purpose of John, based upon what happens in the beginning and what happens at the end, is for, for John to show you the reason I'm writing you this is to start off by saying that Jesus is God. And hopefully after reading this, you guys are going to come to the same conclusion that Thomas came to after working it out and going through the process that, in fact, Jesus is God. Well, how do you know that? Because the framing tells you what's important in the story. And, and this actually is done all throughout, all throughout the text. I mean, it is just there. But see, what we do sometimes is we don't train our eyes to see these things. And it takes time because, you know, we read a chapter, and that's great. Keep doing it. But if you really want to start seeing this stuff, maybe read the whole book itself in one sitting. And do that a couple of times, and I promise you, you'll start seeing some of this stuff. Like uh, at Theosu, we just did the shred, and, and our shredders read the whole Bible in 40 days. Or no, 30 days, one month. They read the whole Bible in one month. And, and when we asked the individuals, like, what was it like to read the Bible in one month? They're like, I saw stuff and things connecting that I never saw connecting before. Because you see the big picture instead of just kind of looking at it chapter by chapter. Okay? You guys with me so far? Does it making sense to you? Is it interesting? If it's not interesting, we can just go watch football, the Pro Bowl. But nobody wants to watch the Pro Bowl, right? Who wants to do that? Okay. Um, I'll skip that. Okay, this is it. This is really interesting here. Let's look at this. This is super interesting. Luke chapter 22, 40 to 46. I'm going to take it off the screen so I don't give it away. Luke 22, 40 to 46. Now, this is called chiastic structure. Now, um, 
How many of here, I'm going to ask a question. How many here know how to read? Raise your hand. I hope every hand is up. How many are still just working on it? You're getting there. Let's see every hand of every person who knows how to read. Put it up. Every single person. Now, if this was first century New Testament, do you know what? Almost every hand may not even be up. Because it was common for people to be illiterate at that time. When you see the book of Revelation was written to a, a community, this is an example, it, the, the book of Revelation was supposed to be read aloud to the churches. And the reason it was supposed to be read aloud is because not everybody knew how to read. So if you didn't know how to read, and, and, and the scripture was supposed to be read aloud to you, it might be difficult to remember it, wouldn't it? Right, and so the New Testament writers, and not just New Testament writers, but biblical writers, but writers knew this, and so they would try to come up with ways. So they would insert ways, quite naturally, actually, because it was just part of how they did things. Ways in, through the method of using patterns that would help people to, to see things and to hear things and to remember things. And the patterns would lead you to show you what is actually most important in the story. And if you can find these patterns, they are everywhere, by the way. You know, it, how many of you have ever, like, decided that you wanted to, like, buy a red Kia? You're like, you know what? I was looking in the newspaper, and I think I'm going to buy a red Kia. And then, all of a sudden, everywhere you look, there's that red Kia. That's a sign from God. Glory to God. He wants me to have that red Kia. No, probably not. It's just that now it's important to you, so you start noticing it. Yeah. You know what to look for, and your brain starts pointing it out. And it's been, but it's been there the whole time. Well, now that you notice these things, guess what? You'll probably start seeing them everywhere. You may start seeing them everywhere over time. So let's Luke chapter 22, 40 to 46. Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, let's look at it. And he came and out and went, and as it was his custom to the Mount of Olives... And his disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling to the ground, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you don't enter into temptation. Now, we read this and we're like, yeah, okay, great, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he was, you know, disciples, they fell asleep. But there, there's something here called the chiastic structure, which is a pattern, I want to show it to you. Um, hold on, where are we at? Uh-oh, no, wait, I'm going the wrong way. I'm giving it all away. Okay, here it is. Let's look at the chiastic structure. Look at first, look at verse number 40. I'm going to get up here real quick. In verse number 40, this whole thing is, is kind of like a, 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 a pattern that moves. Verse number 40, look at the colors. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Look at verse number 46. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you enter not into temptation. So temptation has sandwiched the passage in. You see that? But look at verse number 41. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down. Look at number 45. And he rose. Look at verse number 42. And he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then look what's in the middle. He was strengthened. So you see temptation, temptation, kneel down, rose up, prayer, and strengthen him. Do you see how it's kind of like a little pattern right here? If you're catching it, nod your head so I know you guys see it. Here's a question I want to ask. Was this intentional or was this done accidentally? What's that? How many think it's accidental? How many think this is pretty obvious that this had to have been done intentionally? Exactly. And in the middle, he's showing strength. So you could derive a lot out of this that maybe that when temptation surrounds you, when temptation surrounds you, what you have to do is, is kneel down and pray. And because when you kneel down and pray, you can draw strength. This, this could be what's being stated here in Luke, the solution for dealing with temptation is kneeling down and prayer because when you kneel down in prayer, you find strength in the midst of temptation. It's a pattern. See, look at There's a whole sermon in there. Just lay in there, wait for you. And a lot of this is done so you as the reader, you know, don't have to really strain yourself to find out what the big point is right here. This is how Jesus dealt with temptation. It's given to you in a very organized, a very organized pattern. Let's look at another one. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who should judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Well, look at here in verse number, in, in, in verse number 6, 7 and 8. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me, and not only me, but to all of them at his appearing. Preach, evangelist, and ears. So he's talking to you about how to deal with people that have itching ears. And what's the solution? Preach like an evangelist. And how long do you do it? Until the coming of his kingdom. Do you see that? just a pattern there kind of shows you that he has the intent and, and, and if you're a and you know maybe some people would say well I don't I don't know if they'd be trained to see this I, 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 I could show you if we we're in Greek class and, and and Tyler I know has seen this at SEU when you say when you see ancient Greek manuscripts that were used in first century you have the whole text without any spaces at all in between the letters now imagine looking at a document and, and seeing an English, just any, your Bible, and there's no spaces at all between any of the letters and the chapters. And yet they understood how to read that. How many of you would think if all the spaces in your Bible were removed, you wouldn't understand what it says? Can we agree on that? But a first century reader would know exactly what it says. Guess what? Because their brains knew how to read it like that. They would see stuff. So we can't, as first century readers, we cannot assume that because we don't see it, that the first century reader would not see it. They absolutely would say it because their brains and their eyes were trained to read that way. We just don't have emphasis on it today. So some of the, one of the ways that you can approach the text methodologically is to ask yourself, 
Is it possible that a first century reader would recognize these things? And there's, an, there's no question that they absolutely would see this. Right? I mean, they didn't have Xbox. They didn't have, you know, Paramount Plus and Disney Plus and Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime to sit around and decide how they're going to waste their time. <laughs> the ones that could read, if they could read. Because a lot could read, but many couldn't. At least they would understand when they heard it, right? Okay. How many of you think that maybe things are starting to open up? You might start to be suspecting there's more in there that, than meets the eye. See, what we want to do is look at syntax and try to read like first century people, if at all possible. That's one of the ways of, of getting at the text, at getting at the text. Okay. Um, am I going to do this one here? No, I'm not going to do that one for sake of time. Okay, here's one. This one is, is really interesting. This one's interesting. Let's go here to um, Mark chapter 10, 37. Now, what's interesting in Mark is um, the way that the disciples get portrayed sometimes. And, you know, Jesus is, is making his way, he's making his way to the cross. And... James and John really have a lot of nerve. Now, this is John the Apostle. This is the guy that we always give him, like, a good reputation. He laid his, ha his head on the breast of Jesus. He wrote the book of Revelation. How many, in your mind, you picture John as, like, the good guy? <laughs> like, the best among good people. You got good people, and he's the best among them. Well, John, yeah, yeah you're reading John, really. Like Tyler just said, you're reading John when he says that. John may have had a few strikes against him, Okay. Had a few strikes against them, and this is one of them. They go up to Jesus and they say this, Lord, grant us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Now, can you imagine what that would have to be like? Can, can you imagine going up to Pastor Gary and saying, Pastor Gary, I want to sit with you on the front row at every service from now on. It takes a lot of nerve to say something like that, right? <laughs> Pastor Gary, from now on, I would like to sit with you on the stage from every service this point hereafter. Now, he's a patient man, but if that was me, I'd be like, what? Who are you? <laughs> Takes a lot of nerve to do that. And, and they're asking for a whole lot more than that. I mean, and their expectation was, and I don't even think, when I, the more I read this story, I don't even think it was a request that bothered Jesus. I think it was their understanding of who he is and who he wasn't. The disciples were waiting for Jesus to take political power. They felt that he was the Messiah who was going to come and remove Israel from being under the, under the oppression of the thumb of the Romans. And this is Mark chapter 10 we're talking. This isn't like Mark 1, like Mark 2. Like we're already in chapter 10. Like this, thing, this story is coming to a close. They've been with Jesus for a while, and they still can't figure it out. And, and Jesus um, said to them, you don't know what you are asking. I oftentimes wonder how many times God has said that to me, right? <laughs> are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm able to be drink, and you know what they have the nerve to say? We are. <laughs> okay. Let's look at James and John. So who were they? 
And what did they think about the moment Jesus' glory would come? Well, they wanted the highest post in the new kingdom, which they thought was when they would sit under, when Jesus would rule from Jerusalem, right? Ambition was motivating them, not loyalty. James and John were not just members of the 12, but they were members of the three. So they were the inner circle of the inner circle. And David had three close men. So they probably are reading in the light of, of this, that David had three close men. So they're like, okay, we're pretty, we're pretty cool. We're like, we're like David's three close men, right? But Peter, you know, we're closer to Jesus than Peter because James and John were close to the high priest. So isn't this funny how it, I always think it's funny how it's, it's, James and John, like, where was Peter when all this was happening? They, like, put a, put a cap in them and then went to Jesus and were like, the, the two of us, we're the ones that are close with the high priest. We deserve this the most. And, and really what you see in here is a, is a general sense of entitlement, what I think Jesus, what, what Jesus saw. Now, the gospel is extremely subversive, meaning that it takes people's expectations and it, and it puts it upside down. Now look what happens. When did Jesus' moment of glory really come? Jesus is crucified, and look what it says here. And they crucified him with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. The gospel writer specifically uses the exact same syntax in the Greek. I know that most of us here can't read Greek. To show us, to show us that, to tie into the fact that the moment of glory sitting next to Jesus on his right hand and on his left hand was not a throne in glory in the new kingdom, but it was first going to come by being crucified with him on his right hand and his left hand. They were asking for the throne, and Jesus was calling them to the cross. Do you see that? Now, now does it tell us that in Scripture in plain language? No. It does not. But the story tells us that. It infers that to us. So the, the whole point of this like, lesson that I'm giving you is to show you that the story insinuates a whole lot more than sometimes what we look for in propositions. And I appreciate people when they come to me and say, hey, Bill, Chris, where does it say in the Bible that this, this, and that? And the Bible says a lot of things plainly, okay? But I sometimes get a little frustrated with that question because I'm wondering if in asking that question, that person is able to see beyond the fact that the Bible says a whole lot more in just the stories versus the principles itself. Not that they ever contradict, but it just enhances it. So what do we learn through this story right here is that look at the, the, the Christian life of glory is, is not found in exalting ourselves. It's found in dying to ourselves. And if it gets preached any other way, we are not truly following Jesus. We are to be a crucified people, not a people that enthrones ourselves. I mean, there's so much you can do with this story. And what I love about it is that we, we I think that as Christians, you know, one, one of the things I love about Pentecostals and why I love being amongst Pentecostals, Pentecostals are good storytellers, right? Pentecostals looked at the book of Acts a little bit differently than the rest of the church. The Pentecostals saw themselves as being in the story. 
that this, that, that this whole book of Acts, see, see maybe other camps, and I'm not trying to vilify them because I appreciate other camps, but they would read Acts differently. They would look at it as a piece of literature that, was, that happened many years ago, but Pentecostals would say, no, 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 this is our history, this is our story, and that story is ongoing. And they found themselves in the story, and they would tell the story of the gospel. I think sometimes we just need to tell our stories and find ourselves in the stories. Story is important. Don't treat it like the husk of the corn and just throw the story out and look for the theology. Treat it as a whole. The story is the theology. Right? And you can do that. And I'm a New Testament scholar, but you can do all this with the Old Testament, right? Just, you know, find an Old Testament scholar. He'll show you how. (laughs) Right? Okay, hold on. Okay. Let's get to everybody's favorite book, the book of Revelation. Boy, oh boy, we certainly liked this book in 2020, didn't we? How many, ever went, how many, in, um, how many in 2020 went on Facebook and saw just another person talking about the book of Revelation? Never thought about it before, but then 2020 came along. Suddenly, all the experts came out of the woodwork, didn't they? Now... I have a little bit of authority to talk about the book of Revelation. Not that I know everything, but this is where I'm doing my PhD work in, in this. And, uh, you know, when, when people find out and they say, well, where are you doing your, your, your doctoral work at? Uh, which book of the Bible? I say, well, the book of Revelation. And you know, what do you think the first question I get is? What's the mark of the beast? <laughs> is it a vaccine? Who's the Antichrist? Is it Elon Musk? Am I allowed to drive a Tesla? And I'm like, oh, oh, Jesus. And you know what I start telling them? I look at them and I say, yeah, it's definitely Tesla. <laughs> but I was going to buy one. Well, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> it's definitely a Tesla. Yep, you're in trouble. I'm sorry. I am, I'm, I'm very sorry. And that ends that. But we know in the book of Revelation I'm not getting here to talk about how you read Revelation, and, and I don't want to get into that tonight. But we know that there is a set of judgments, three sets of judgments, right? How many have ever heard about the seal judgments? How many seals are there? Seven seals. How many trumpet judgments are there? Seven trumpet judgments. And how many bull or vile judgments are there? There are seven judgments. I remember one time... <laughs> I was like in second grade and they were, the preacher came to do a chapel and they were preaching on the trumpet judgments and we're talking about the moment that the trumpet would blow and Christ would come and the pastor had one of his people go in the back of the room and sneak up and blow a trumpet in the back of the room. We were all so scared. (laughs) I started repenting for everything. God, I'm so sorry I stole that cookie. God, I'm so sorry I lied to my mom. I'm so sorry, God, I watched Beavis and Butthead last night. Lord, forgive me. So, something interesting. When you look at the end of all those judgments, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to explain to you what it all means, but just think about it. I'll let you just think about it. When you get to the end of those judgments, when the seventh seal is open, when the seventh trumpet blows, and when the seventh bowl is poured out, you see the same language being used. Look at here. Four, five. It says... Well, actually, before four or five, before you get, actually, before you actually even get to that, at the throne, when you see God, when you see the appearance of God, because at the throne, God is, 
introduced the one who sits on the throne. It says, from the throne comes flashings of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. What happened at Sinai when Moses ascends on Sinai? God appears. And what type of, of language do we have when we hear God appears? Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and thunder, right? So we know from, from Exodus that when God appears, it's language this way to show lightning, thunder, and earthquake. And if you were a good Jew and you had ever heard of the Exodus, you would know that this means an appearance of God. So it only is fitting that in 4 or 5 that when God is introduced at this point on the throne, you would have that type of language, right? Seems pretty fair, doesn't it? When the seventh seal opens, look at how it's described. At the opening of that seal, you have pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then you get to chapter 11, when you have the seventh trumpet, which blows. And at that trumpet, at the end of that judgment, you have flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and now heavy hail. And, and then you get to the seventh vial being poured out in Revelation chapter 16, which, by the way, is, bef is right before Babylon falls. And look what you have. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each. How many would look at this and say, this is the exact same language being used through the book of Revelation? And if we know it's the coming of God, what is this telling us about the judgments? The judgments seem to end with the coming of God, don't they? And I'm not going to sit here and work through this with you tonight, but let me ask you this question, and I'm not trying to answer, I'm just asking it to you. Does God come three times in the book of Revelation? Or is the book of Revelation showing you the coming of God in three different ways? And I would argue here that it's doing more. It's doing more. It's, it's showing to you something about the coming of God. That these judgments lead to the same coming of God. Be that as it may. I mean, we, we, I don't want to just turn to a discussion on the book of Revelation because after you're going to come up to me like, what do you believe? We're not going to get into that here tonight. <laughs> but I will say how many we can make some pretty simple observations. How many would say that that these comings intensify with the addition of each earthquake. And how would you feel as a reader if you saw these comings intensify, anticipating? He's coming. I need to prepare. With every judgment, the coming of God seems to be getting more intense. It seems to be drawing closer. Your anticipation as a reader would start to build. And, and by the time that you get to really anticipating the coming of God, you are now at the scene where Babylon is about to exalt itself and then fall. And then finally in chapter 19, the white horse rider, Gandalf, the white horse rider comes with, with faithful and true on his side and the new Jerusalem replaces the city that has just fallen and we finally see the coming of God. And who is the one that comes? Jesus Christ. I'd submit to you that it's talking about judgments that are gonna take place before the systems of the world fall and Jesus Christ finally comes. 
But you see how it all ties together. So there's something going on in that. And I would say that before we, we start like making predictions about what's going to take place, we should pay attention to the patterns that are there in Scripture because the patterns tell us stuff that's so important. Let's look at the book of Mark and look at patterns quickly. Which time, what time do we have? 6.46. Oh, we've only been going, what, 45 minutes? Okay, so we'll go 15 minutes more and then we'll have uh, maybe 20 more minutes and we'll have some Q&A. Sounds good? Okay. Parataxis. Um, okay, everybody look at the book of Mark. Open your Bible and go to the book of Mark. Now, as you look at it, tell me, look at the first word of every verse and tell me what word you seem to see a lot. Book of Mark. Like, look to see what word seems to start almost every verse. No, 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 not, not quite, not quite. Not, just look at it, like, look at the whole book. And look at the verse, look at all the verses, just kind of do a general sweep, book of Mark, and look at the different verses and, and try to see if you see a word that seems to dominate the, the, the start of every passage. Huh? And. Yeah, okay, now that you, I said it, and. Look at how many times and starts the verses. Did you guys see it? How many see and a lot here? Look at. And when he came up out of the water, and a voice from heaven said, and the spirit suddenly, and he was in the wilderness, and, 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 and. How many seems that and is there a lot in this book? Um, for, for a statistic's sake, 67%, 64% of all of the verses in the book of Mark begin with the word and. That's 410 out of 678 verses and starts the book. Isn't that interesting? Why would Mark start the book with the word and? I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you like this. This is, this is a, 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 um, a literary style. So the, the reason I'm trying to show this to you today is to show you that Mark had a literary style. Because sometimes, why is that important? Because sometimes we think that, you know, the biblical authors, uh, one day they're just kind of sitting out, just kind of, drinking a glass of iced tea and watching the sun and feeling bacon in the sun and suddenly they just felt compelled to write and, and they sat down and he just started right? That's not how they wrote. The Holy Spirit inspired their writing but they used their own styles. And one of the styles is that Mark is using is this thing called parataxis which is stringing together short, loosely connected sentences. Now, what purpose does this serve? Well, it's kind of like a child talks, right? Have you ever, has a child ever come up to you and told you about their day? Do they talk eloquently? No. Mommy, today I went to school and I had extra recess and I was on the slide and 
I fell off the slide and I hurt my knee and I started crying and then I went to the nurse office and they gave me a lollipop and it feels better and then and then you came to pick me up and then mom can you take me to the store and after that can you have dinner and can I watch movies and can I go to sleep tonight late and can I stay up with you and daddy and you're just like whoa 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 slow down it's quick it's fast and it moves the ball along what is Mark doing he is telling you a very quick fast paced letter that moves the story from beginning to end very quickly. If Matthew, Luke, and John, in my opinion, are like the ball game, Mark is like watching Sports Center. It's moving stories quick. He doesn't really camp on anything. He kind of shows you things that are quick, and, and he moves the story quickly because he's excited and he, he's showing to you the message of the gospel in a very quick short form. So, so it's important to pay attention to these sort of stylistic features. Uh, let's see here. Which ones did I skip? Um, go, with John, go to John 9. Okay, so we're starting to see that in, in, in the New Testament, we have these patterns that show up and then paying attention to the pattern is really important. I, I would suffice to say that these really enhance our reading. So what's the point of making all this is that when we come to the story, we, we should treat it, we should treat it as a story. John chapter nine. Now, um, I've seen John 9 preached a lot of ways, and I think there's many ways that you can get at John. In, in Pentecostal or Word of Faith type circles, this usually is a story about how to receive your healing, right? The man's born blind, and, and you know, how, how do we get healed? And, and the idea is Jesus healed. Now, I like that. I'm, I'm with it. But I think there's, there's probably a lot more going on that takes place. And, and one of the most important things that you can do with the story is, is pay attention to the characters, right? Aren't the characters important? Yeah, the characters are extremely important. And, and here we have a blind man, and he, his character is going to show us something that's really interesting. It says in verse 1, And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him and said, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus answered, It wasn't that this man sinned, and it wasn't that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that's interesting. That's interesting. Sometimes we think that that's the healing. And I, I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying it, we shouldn't just limit it to that because this guy is about to become an illustration of something. He's going to be the sermon illustration, Jesus' sermon illustration. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming and no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him as a beggar said, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, this, Now this is, this is kind of, this is a humorous story here. Like this is comedy. I know it's not pie in the face, three stooges comedy, but this is, if you read it out loud, you can start to hear the humor that's in here. 
is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, is he? Is it he? Others said, no, it's not him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said, then how are your eyes open? And he said, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to them the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been born blind. I always think that's a funny verse because in my mind, I picture the Pharisees sitting outside. They're like playing cards like a bunch of Italian guys. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees asked and said, how did you receive your sight? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Imagine what the Pharisees were thinking at this point. Some of the Pharisees said, this man isn't from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others says, how can a man who is a sinner do these things? And there's a division among them. Now the Pharisees start to fight. If he did it on, if he respected the Sabbath, he would be a man of God, but he doesn't respect the Sabbath, so he can't be a man of God. The other ones are like, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, but how could he do this unless he wasn't from God? Now they start to fight. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? They can't decide for themselves. So they're like, well, what do you say? He says, well, he's a prophet. The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and received his sight. Now they're skeptics. Back to what we talked about this morning, right? Until they called the parents of the man. Now the parents show up. Like, what are they doing in the scene? Where were they even when this started? Now, somehow they just, you guys ever play video games and a character just pops up out of nowhere? Like the non-player characters, like they just show up. Here they just show up in the scene. And they called the parents of the man who had received the sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents said, we have no idea that our son was born. We have no idea. But we know that he sees. We do not. And we don't know who, who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Verse 23. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. For the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you, and how did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples? <laughs> scathing, scathing. See the humor in this? It's funny. We're all laughing. This is you're supposed to laugh when you read this. And they rivaled them, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. <sighs> you think Moses would look at Jesus and call him strictly a man? We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man said, why is this man, what, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes, yet he opens my eyes. We know that if God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the, man's, uh, the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do nothing. They answered, you were born in sin and you would try to teach us and they cast him out of the temple. They took away his membership card. He got banned from Costco. No more membership. No more $1.50 hot dogs. Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found the man, he says, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe? Jesus says, you have seen him. And it is he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. 
now. Thanks for putting up with that. Some very interesting things in here. Let's read. You guys ever, um, like, do you guys ever watch those mystery movies where the murder takes place, like the Alfred Hitchcock stuff, and then it's like, let's go back and watch what happened and see what happened. And then he starts taking you through it and shows you things that the first watch you didn't see. Let's go back and, and look at this again and see what happened. Jesus tells the man, the works of God are going to be made manifest in you. I'm, I'm going to demonstrate something through you. I'm going to use you as my illustration here. The first time that the Pharisees asked him about Jesus, what did he say? I believe it's in verse number 11. Yeah, verse number 11. What does he call Jesus? Verse 11. He answered, they said, who, what happened to you? What does he say about Jesus? He calls him a man. He says, the man called Jesus. The man called Jesus, right? And, and then they press him a little bit more. Tell us more about him. What does he call Jesus in verse number 17? He's a prophet now. Now he's not just a man. Now he's what? He's a prophet, right? Go down here to verse number 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, God does and God listens to him. So how about he's someone who God listens to and he's not a sinner? So in just 31 verses, this guy who is supposed to be blind is really starting to change his opinion about who Jesus is, isn't he? Man, prophet, like unto Moses, someone that God listens, to, God listens to. And then look what happens here. In verse number 38, Jesus appears to him, and the guy who simply thought Jesus was a man now looks at him and says, Lord which would mean in the Greek, ho kurios, which would really mean Jehovah. You are God. In this story, we have the story of a man whose physical eyes were open, but guess what? His spiritual eyes were opening as well. And remember the intent of the book of John. It's showing ordinary people like Thomas who go from looking at Jesus as an ordinary man to now perceiving him as the God who came to save man from his sin. What were the works that were demonstrated in this man? How about that he saw who Jesus was and that he's God? And guess what? His physical blindness served to use as an illustration what it's like when the spiritual heart of an individual opens, his, opens up and begins to see Jesus as God. And that's something. How one character can tell us so much in a story. How about that? So I want to kind of wrap up this lecture because I've kind of, it's 701 here and I've kind of been at it for an hour. It's show you that as, as New Testament readers really appreciate this story. Now, there are elements to the story that you can look at. And you want to look at, um, let's say you're looking at the, 
story of the new, whatever story you're looking at, pay attention to a few things. Number one, you can look at the characters. Pay attention to the various characters. See how the characters come into the scenes and see how the characters come out of the scenes. Now, even in stories, the characters serve different purposes. Um, for instance, there's a type of character in literature called a foil. How many know what a foil is? A foil is a character that is placed in the story to serve the other character and bring forth a contrast, right? I'll give you an example. How many have seen The Lion King? How many, when I said that, you heard the circle of life begin to play in your head? And who is the main character in The Lion King? Simba. What is Simba? He is the heir to the throne. He comes from kingly descent. He's supposed to have the pride of being a king, the courage of being a king, and the, and the ability to be the king. And when he leaves Pride Rock, and he whatever, and, he, and he's running from Scar, who becomes his friends? A warthog and a meerkat. And Timon and Pumbaa are sort of like the hippies that drive the hippie van, right? They're like hang loose, bro, right? And they're so stupid and so carefree that hanging out with Simba acts as a foil and shows you the kingly character of Simba and more specifically how Simba is not living up to that, hanging out with these clowns. So the whole time he's hanging out with these guys, these characters are bringing out in you a longing for Simba to go back there and stop acting like a carefree hippie. Right? That's what the character is supposed to do. It's supposed to make you feel a way. That's what a foil does. That's what it, it makes you feel a certain way about the main character. And you have these you have these foils in the story. I'll give you an example. Jesus is crucified. And who's at the cross? The disciples, right? No. Only one of them. Who's at the cross? Three women. On one sense, you can say, I am woman, hear me roar. Or on the other sense, you could say, these women are acting as a foil, showing you the weakness and the cowardice and the fear that were actually in the ones that should have been there the whole time, and that is the disciples. And then when you read on in the story and you see what God does with them, you could say it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. Or how about the woman who takes the two mites and she throws them in? You really don't know the greed and the pride and the arrogance of the religious leaders until the little old woman comes along and takes all that she has and gives it. And that foil truly shows you how stingy the religious leaders are. So you can look at character sketches. You can look at plot. You can look at setting. I'll give you an example of how setting is, right? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he's going onto the Mount of Beatitudes. He comes out of the wilderness, 40 days. He's in there. The wilderness is the setting. And then Jesus goes up to the mountain after that to sit down and tell everybody from his mouth the law of God. 
wilderness, mountain, mountain, wilderness. What does the story sound like to you? The Exodus. Moses in the wilderness, 40 days. Now he goes up to a mountain. Is it possible that the story of Jesus is being put in parallel to the story of the people of God in Exodus and that Jesus now becomes a greater Moses as he ascends to the Mount of Beatitude and that maybe the reader is supposed to picture themselves on Sinai with he who was and is and is yet to come? The setting makes a difference, doesn't it? The setting tells us a whole lot. Was that intentional by the writer? You better believe it was. There's a lot of ways to read scripture. But I want to end by saying, if it's a story, it takes time. But do your best to appreciate it as a story. Amen? Okay, we have a few minutes for questions. Um, Anybody want to take a stab and uh, ask a question? Just don't ask me what the mark of the beast is. (laughs) anybody have any questions they want to ask i'll be happy to do my best i don't know everything but i can if i don't know it i'll just make up something and say that's how it is right anybody got any questions usually takes one but if there's no questions hey great we'll go eat ice cream earlier than than i thought It's all Greek to you. That's why I teach Greek, to confuse everybody so everybody thinks I'm the expert and doesn't ask me anything. What's the thing that's left out from your research? Right now, I am spending all of my free time and all of my time in the book of Revelation. And I've really come to appreciate going through this, this book and recovering it out of readings that in our tradition are often so conspiratorial and sensational and fanatical. Um, I would say that if anybody were to undertake teaching the book of Revelation, the place to begin would understand the genre of this book that it's apocalyptic literature and to orient yourself to the genre because we don't have apocalyptic literature in our 21st century society. It was a very niche genre. And so reading it through the lens of Second Temple Judaism and how apocalyptic actually went back to the Old Testament for the symbolisms the typology and then the expectation of the reader when they came to a piece of apocalyptic and reading it through the lens of what was taking place at that time, the historical context, but also paying attention to the characters has kind of given to me a a new outlook on what this book actually is trying to communicate to us, that it's not some sort of deciphering mechanism to tell us what's going to happen or who's who on planet Earth. But really what it is, it's a document to encourage us to live faithfully to Jesus and to demonstrate the example of the Lamb who was a witness and whose witness was so uncompromised in the face of an ancient, of a a wicked culture that his witness actually caused him to be sent to death. And that his witness, his faithful witness was what caused him to overcome 
And when Jesus tells the churches to overcome, he's calling them to be faithful witnesses and to follow his example even if it leads to death. And how at the other side of that is the promise of the new Jerusalem. And to see the dichotomy between the new Jerusalem and the earth dwellers, the people of God, and the, there's so many dichotomies. There's the people of God, there's the saints, the overcomers, and then there's the earth dwellers. There is Babylon and there is the new Jerusalem. There is the lamb who has seven horns and then there is the beast with seven horns. It's two sides and lines are being drawn in the book of Revelation and God is telling us that you're gonna pick a side. Are you gonna be on my side or are you gonna be on the other side? And, and the way to be on God's side is very clear and distinct. It is to act the way that the lamb acted and that is have a faithful witness. Have a witness that testifies of Jesus amongst a society that is wicked. That's all it really is. And the people who are witnesses, the word martis is used, and martis didn't mean at, it, martis was a, I talk about this in my book, Greek Word Study, martis was simply a, a word that meant a legal testimony of a witness. It wasn't always associated with death the way it is now. And basically it meant a, a guy who shows up in court and actually gives a faithful or dependable witness. And when you give a faithful and dependable witness of Jesus in the book of Revelation, it usually gets you killed. Now, what's the faithful and dependable witness today? How about there's two genders? How about the sanctity of life? That's a good place to begin. How about the outcry against hatred and unlawful violence? How can we bear witness to the justice of God? These are things that are faithful witnesses that today will get you killed. And guess what? Things never really turn for them. They kind of just... <coughs> and I think God calls his people to faithful witness up to the point of death. And, and when you read Revelation that way, all of the sensationalism goes out the window and it becomes a very convicting thing. Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, overcome. Smyrna, overcome. Philadelphia, overcome. Seven different churches, seven different situations, some given to apathy, some given to persecution, others given to assimilating with the culture, and God calls them out of that and says, overcome, shows them how the lamb overcame, shows them the fact that people who witness, they're given death, and yet at the same time, the ones that do, he promises them the new Jerusalem. I think there's nothing more pertinent and relevant to us today than recovering of this document that calls us to be faithful witnesses, maintain your witness. And um, it's a great book. Sister, yes? I think, so I, I, when I say witness, I don't necessarily mean like knocking on the door and being a street, wit, uh, you know, street witness or even having to, to demonstrate or preach sometimes. I think the, the book of Revelation is telling us the way you live your life. Before you think about other people, it's important for you to make a firm decision that um, you're going to live an uncompromised, you're going to live an uncompromised life. And if you do that, there's a lot of power in that. It's not always having, what should I say about them? It's just simply, if you're asked what you think about the hot button issues, don't turn back and cower. Don't worry that you're not going to have the precise answer. A good answer is in God created male and female. 
Well, what do you think about racism? Sin. That's what I think about it. What do you think about injustice? We do our best. I want to see justice. But at the end of the day, God's the one who brings final justice. And do your best to live a life that's just and live a life that's holy and encourage the people around you to live a life that's just and live a life that's holy and admit that people are sinful and that Christ calls us out of sin. And if you do that, you're going to find out a lot of persecution is going to come your way. And don't back down and don't cower in the face of that. And I think if you do that, there's something to be said about that. You know, I'll give you an example of uh, my dad. He was a businessman uh, for a lot of years. He's in corporate America. My dad never cussed, never swore, never went to the gentlemen's clubs with all his friends. He didn't stand on his, with a, and beat the drums of the pulpit. But I think about my dad at all those years in corporate America, just living his convictions, he was a faithful witness. There's a lot of times where people would say, oh, and they would tease him. But you know something? They knew who to ask when they needed prayer. And if you do that, sister, it's going to go a long way. You don't have to come in there and like, you know, take a track and hide it in their briefcase or have an eloquent answer. Just live true to form. Live true to form. You know, like, um, think about it like this, like in, in golf, they want you to get that form down and like just repeat that perfect form every time. Every time you go to work, every time you're around a family, think about the form of a Christian, what that looks like, and live that. You know, you don't have to, sometimes you don't have to be preachy, you don't have to do all that, just, just live like a Christian. Maintain your convictions. You're on your way. That's convicting. It's convicting when, like a, an atheist who's a nihilist who doesn't have purpose sees somebody whose purpose exceeds themselves. Sees a person, an, an, an atheist, usually the, the types of atheists that are out there today are sort of, self-centered and self-congratulatory, right? The good of humanity, they're humanists. And I'm gonna tell you something, that can be very empty. And when you are living a life with meaning and purpose that's centered in God, it will convict them eventually. They will think about you. And let the Holy Spirit do the rest. That's all it takes. I don't wanna say that's all it takes because it will, it, will it will sting at times. But that's, that's the way to live. You don't have to go to on Facebook and put 100 scriptures and ask everyone to pray for your nephew and your son and all that stuff. You don't do that. Just live, live your convictions. Anyone else got any questions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that would, I would speak in terms of Luke and the way that Luke uses the word witness, uh, sort of Luke is using that word to set up the rest of the narrative. Um, I think Luke's idea of, of witness was missional and that there was a, a mission that was behind Luke's witness that that was igniting. Jesus is saying this, that's kind of igniting the book of Acts, that they're gonna go out there and they're gonna preach and they're gonna proclaim the gospel. But it's similar to John's idea of witness because when they're preaching the gospel, they're doing it in sec secular societies, and they're doing it towards hostile Jews, and they're doing it towards hostile Gentiles, and it gets them into hot water, and it gets them into big trouble. And oftentimes, it got them into big trouble with the governments, didn't it? Not that they were revolutionaries and trying to topple the government, because um, to answer that question, the book of Acts is a really interesting book, because it's actually an apologetic 
Luke is going to bat for his buddy Paul. Remember, Luke traveled with Paul, didn't he? He's one of his homies. And Paul, everywhere he went, there was always a stir. And you could get in trouble. Like what he did in Ephesus could have got him in really big trouble. Because at that time, if you were seen trying to overturn and topple the government, it was off with your head. And they would have taken his head off, but he was a Roman citizen, wasn't he? So he had to undergo trial. And what was happening in the churches at the time is people didn't want to hang out with Paul. It would be like if somebody came here and was always in trouble. If somebody came here and says, I'm in trouble, the CIA is after me. You'd be like, go to the Baptist church down the street. <laughs> Don't hang out with us because guess what? They're going to come. If they know you're here and you're on this membership role, they're going to be looking at our taxes. They're going to be looking at our, our history for that. They're going to be searching all of our, our computers. We don't need that. We don't want you here. Same thing was happening to Paul. So Luke writes this book, and he explains, and through the narrative, he shows to you that it wasn't Paul's fault that this stuff was happening to him. All he was doing was witnessing, and in witnessing, people started their own uproars. Everyone started toppling the government themselves just to get at Paul. So it shows you just how deep it can be the persecution that is when, when you're a witness for Jesus and when you're doing what God calls you to do. So the idea of witness in Acts is a, is a missional term that was um, commissioning the disciples to go out and do the work of God, preach the gospel, speak about Jesus, and set them outside their comfort zone and, and got them in trouble. That wasn't their fault, though but got him in trouble. So it tells us as witnesses, yeah, you're going to be persecuted. Yeah, in America, as America goes secular, I hope it doesn't, but as America continues to go secular and starts to, now we could talk government, but I don't want to go down that because I believe Christians should serve in government because it's way better to have Christians and Judeo-Christian principles in our country than not to. But regardless of how the chips fall, I mean, we do our best to represent good government, but regardless how the chips fall, God looks at you and, oh, Biden's in office. Yeah, well, you know what? Guess what? That doesn't change. You need to be a faithful witness. But that means it's going to be hard. Yeah, well, welcome to the New Testament. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, but it's missional. So, yeah, it's a big mission field here in America, isn't it? I was with pastors last week in San Jose. Oh, my gosh. Pastors in San Jose and San Francisco, I, I told them, I was like, it's going to get to the point where we have to start supporting them like missionaries. <laughs> where are you support Zimbabwe. Where are you support Mozambique. Where are you supporting Seattle, Washington. <laughs> we have four churches that we're supporting in Seattle. <laughs> Seriously, though. Anybody else got any questions? Going once. Going twice, going two and a half times, <laughs> going two and three quarters. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you called us to your word and to scripture to be your witnesses, to be faithful. I just pray an anointing upon this wonderful church that here in Okoye, they are able to preach the gospel, to maintain their conditions, to live faithful lives, to bear witness of the work of God the crucified, transformed life that we have through our humility, through our rhetoric, through our love, through our boldness, 
through uncompromised values that we have, the way that we are towards one another, the way that we are towards the world, and our relentlessness to knock back down when the heat is on. We praise you, we honor you, we respect you, Lord. We give our lives to you. Help this church to know your word deeper, that it be planted in their heart in a way in which it could never be taken out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. God bless. There's a couple awesome. books back there if you're interested, and that's the end. Hey, can we get up for Chris? Isn't that so great? Thanks for being with us all day. <laughs> um, hey, so for next week for Sunday school, uh, there is no Sunday school because it is a Super Bowl. And uh, we will be, I will be watching the Super Bowl. You're more than welcome to come here. The doors will be locked. But if you want to have a prayer meeting outside the doors, you're more than welcome to. Um, so the week after that, Feb, uh, February the 19th, we're going to be hopping back in. We'll have week four of Sunday school. We're going to be talking through Old Testament narratives in the Pentateuch, kind of looking at that. How do we approach those books and uh, Old Testament narrative specifically? And... Um, one thing, so he's got a couple books left. I think that's, there's only three or four books, that's it. And, and then he sold everything he came with. So uh, let's pick those up and just bless him with finishing that out. And, uh, and then also, like, if you are intrigued and you want to go beyond what we're able to do at Sunday School, uh, Chris is the dean of Theos Seminary, but there's a thing called Theos U, T-H-E-O-S, the letter U, like university, that they do theology classes. Uh, it's $10 a month, $15 a month. Glad. Okay. Awesome. Use the word glad, the code glad, and you get 50% off. Um, uh, and so you can sign up. There's classes very similar to what we're going through. Um, they have classes on uh, everything. Uh, you name it, and uh, they're always doing different hot topics and stuff like that that are pertaining to uh, real culture issues. So uh, Chris does those classes, Nathan Finocchio that we've had many times. Uh, you know Nathan very well. He's the founder of TheosU, and uh, it's super cheap. I'm a subscriber. I love the videos, um, and you can get really in the weeds on a lot of things. Um, but if you don't, that's okay. That's why we're doing Sunday School and getting some more in-depth uh, for that. All right? Hey, thank you guys so much. Uh, we'll see you on Wednesday night. Have a great night. God bless.